0: Hello and welcome back to the Ask Abhijit show. I hope you're all doing very well. It's been a while since we had this live stream. I've been traveling a lot, but here we are. I'm back. So I hope you're all very well. And thank you very much for being on this live stream with me. Uh, As you note, this is a live stream in which I'm going to take questions from the live chat only, not from uh, questions asked in the comments, so that this is a more interactive session and, you know, there's more interaction and you can ask questions that I would otherwise maybe miss. So that's what we will do tonight. And let's see who all is there on the live stream. I can see Shushrut, Abhishek, Sharma, Rogue Gamer, Debo, Man Pratik, Celestial, Dust, Suraj, Aman, Saini, Sunny, Imran, Shushrut, Abhishek, Rogue Gamer, Anupam, Adele, Kodzer, Saksham, Aditya, D K Boss. Herbion Wheels, Vidhan, Challenge accepted, Sanat, Sonia, Kalpana, Aryan, Kalind, Akash, Ajay Kumar, Praveen, Gituparna, Tanishk, Kosvi, Yashvardhan, Mebang, Kitlang, Arsagar, Vanal, Vanlal, Ruata, Prakhar, Jay Desai, Pratham, Snorlax, Artik, Priyanshi, Vladimir, Putin, <laughs> uh, Kedar, Harshit, Brijesh, Sumit, Vishal, Vinaypreet, Pilu.com, Akash, Kostav, Swamiadeep, Vishnu, Sukhi, and lots and lots of other people. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much I, for being here. I will not be able to greet you all individually, but but yes, Greetings. So with that done, let's get into the questions. If you have questions, start asking me now and I'll take as many as I can from the live stream, from the live chat. So let's see, what do we have? Let us see, what do we have? Kalpana says, why didn't our kings do anything to save Nalanda University? Even if the universe was burned, why was it not restored later? I'm sure our kings must have tried to resist the Turks You know, uh, what was was his name? Bakhtiar Khilji was the barbarian who destroyed the the university. So he was able to do this because he he was able to defeat the king, whoever it was, who, you know, ruled that area. So the king must have resisted. Indian kings must have resisted. The problem was that it was not that we did not resist. The problem was lack of political unity at that time. You see, Indian history is, is, is full of these cycles in which you have political unity under a single empire and then the empire uh, eventually dissolves and then you have fragmentation, lots of little kingdoms, you know. And when you have little kingdoms, they are all competing against each other. And that's what you, we call lack of unity. So instead of working together or having a single leadership, they're going to be, you know, disunited. that's when it's easy for outsiders to come in and do whatever they do. You know, plunder, pillage, invade, conquer, occupy. That's what they do. So our kings resisted. We have this, you know, our education system, our history books, our teachers have created this impression that uh, our kings did not do anything, uh, which is completely wrong. Our kings resisted fiercely for centuries. But eventually we know what happened. So the process of the conquest of India by the Turks, that process took, at least three or four centuries and they were never able, able to conquer the entire subcontinent entirely. So there was a thing. So our kings resisted, but eventually um, the the Baktiir khilji was able to conquer the, that area, eastern India and uh, Bihar, what we call Bihar now, and they destroyed the university and we are see we are witnessing similar scenes in France right now. And even if the universe was burned, why wasn't, why was it not restored later? Well, you know, the, the library in that university burned for several months. So you can imagine how many books we lost. How do you restore that? Thousands of years of knowledge and records, historical records, scientific advancements, all of that was burned. How do you restore that? Knowledge is precious. Wisdom is precious. It's, 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 you know, recorded on fragile manuscripts and all that. Once that burns, it's gone. It's, it's, it's smoke. How do you restore that? And yeah, so that's a library. What about the university itself? Well, after that, the Turks ruled the area. And why would they want the university to be restored? It's not like they came there, they plundered, they destroyed, the burned, and then they left. No. You know, so there were waves upon waves of Turkic invasions and eventually we know what happened, the Bengal Sultanate, right? So when you have a Turk ruling Bengal and eastern India, why would they allow the university to be restored and rebuilt? Won't happen. So, you know, we had universities, great universities, Mahavishwa Vidyalayas, all across the length and the breadth of India. And none of them exists today. So, you know, we were not allowed, our ancestors were not allowed to rebuild these universities so this is you know a cautionary tale for us we have to learn from our history we can never allow this to happen again and for that we need political unity even today india is disunited even today indians are fighting each other you see this all the time on social media sniping at each other and saying you are wrong i am wrong i'm right you're wrong fighting each other even today the dominant identity for most indians is the subnational identity my region my state my language And they identify by that first. They identify with that first, not as Indians. I may be Indian, but I am this or I am that. I speak this language. I am from this region. I I have this, this religion, maybe foreign religions or whatever. And just keep on fighting, 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 fighting each other. This is the problem. We still have this problem. And we also have this federal system, federalism, which makes India so internally weak. All the energy is spent fighting inside, you know. So that's the issue. So we still have um, much to learn and uh, much to change. The system that has been imposed upon us, this uh, parliamentary democracy system, is not ideal for India. We need a better system. I'm not saying we need to reject democracy. We need to have a better democratic system. We are the inventors of democracy, to so to say. Democracy was, it first emerged out of India. So anyway, that's the deal. And uh, yeah, that's the answer to that question in brief. Melvin says, what do you think about Peter Zehan's assessment on India not becoming a major power because with many internal problems? Is it true from his perspective, from his point? Well, I have not read what he has written or said. I have not heard what he has said, but okay. So in case he, I, I'm aware of the guy. He is a geopolitical analyst. He has written a few books, I, suppose, I, expect, I believe, at least one. I don't remember the name, but anyhow. So... Assuming that he has made the assessment that India will not become a major power because of its many internal problems, there is some truth to that. See, Indians keep asking about when are we going to become a superpower. I would say, forget about being a superpower or a Vishwa Guru. Try to become a reasonably like semi-developed nation first. You can't sprint before you learn how to walk. and We are still learning how to walk. So, like I just said in, about the previous uh, question, we have so many internal problems. It's true. We are so disunited. There is so much, uh, you know, the sub-national identities that we have in India. Every state every state in India fights the other. Certain states have political parties that espouse, you know, uh, soft separatist ideology. The, the Aryan invasion theory has created this deep divide between the so-called Dravidians and the so-called uh, Aryans which is completely fictitious. It's it's the Aryan tourism theory or Aryan picnic theory now, but whatever. But people have internalized these, these fake ideas, you know, because, and, and because we are still taught this nonsense. So the first thing that needs to happen is we need to change the education system, improve it, you know. So none of this is being addressed right now. We have what? The new education policy, which is like, you know, putting... Um, <laughs> putting Band-Aid on a, on a gunshot wound, on a bullet wound. That's the kind of thing it is. It does nothing. It doesn't address the real issues. So, uh, yeah, we have lots of internal problems. But I'm sure, you know, the biggest problems. you know, when you have very complicated issues, you, we need sim- simple solutions. The more complicated a problem is, the simpler the solution has to be. So that's a good thing. But, yeah, but it will take, you know, political will to change things i think india will eventually become a major power i think india is the only nation in the, in the next 20 years that's whose e- major nation whose economy is going to keep growing so i think you know we do have problems but we do have uh, uh, strong points as well and as long as we keep electing the right leaders we're going to eventually be fine i think it's a matter of time maybe in the next 10 20 years we may even have a new constitution you know things may change that much right now this this decade the 2020s it's a very uh, it's a time of very uh rapid and significant geopolitical change change that you typically see happen over decades we are seeing it happen over years so things could change significantly and so i don't entirely agree with peter zehan's assessment that india will not become a major power In, india does have major problems major internal problems but those can be solved with with political will so as long as we keep electing the right leaders then eventually the, you know they're going to chip away at the problems and eventually there will be a tipping point when the solutions will come much faster so if peter zehan has made his uh, an assessment that india will not become a major power i think I, I i disagree with that very strongly india will become a major power nobody can stop us all right now let us see mm. uh, let's see some of the questions Anish says, could you please create a documentary style video on the Manipur matter to help clarify misconceptions? So, you know, I've stayed away from the Manipur matter because it's an ongoing crisis. It's an ongoing issue. It's a very sensitive matter. I, I And you know, <laughs> whenever something new happens, experts crop up. So when Galwan happened, all of a sudden you had all these China experts who popped up, who cropped up. Everybody became a China expert. When Ukraine happened, everybody became a Russia and Ukraine expert. When the Titanic submarine sank or whatever happened, everybody became a submarine ex- expert. And now everybody is becoming a Manipur expert. You know, we need to be very careful not to believe everything that these so-called experts tell us on social media and, and, and uh, you know journalists and all that. The matter is very complicated. It has historical roots that go back at least a century, if not three centuries. Uh, And this is an ongoing issue. So I have deliberately and consciously decided not to speak about this right now. It's a very complex issue. And there are certain things that will open up entire Pandora's boxes. You know, certain issues that I think I should not speak about right now. So that's why I have consciously and deliberately not spoken about this. Maybe eventually I'll make a video. Maybe eventually I'll I'll invite a guest who is a, a recognized expert on the matter and have them speak about this or maybe i will deal with this only from a geopolitical perspective so i think eventually i will do it but right now it's it's a very sensitive matter that's all i can say so i would prefer not to speak too much about this right now but yeah it's it's a, it's it, it's a terrible situation and it's a geopolitical matter you know people see only the superficial surface level stuff of what's happening and they'll say that nothing is being done but you know uh, like i said <laughs> it's a complicated matter it's actually a geopolitical issue there are outside forces that are that are ha- making this happen the same way that what's happening in france to some extent has external you know has an external hand as well much of it is france's own fault but there is an external hand as well in this so something similar is happening in manipur you know all these terrorists who are terrorizing the natives of manipur how who is organizing them all Who is providing them the leadership and the coordination? Who is providing the funds? You know, these questions have to be asked. And Spontaneous uh, movements don't arise spontaneously. You need leadership, you need uh, cohesion, you need organization, you need leadership, and you need funding. Where is it all coming from? So there's a whole lot that's happening right now. I just hope that things will simmer down peacefully. And I hope it's not only peace that is imposed, but justice that is given. And the terrorists and the foreigners who have infiltrated in large numbers are evicted. That's what needs to happen. We have, we are a nation of compromises. We keep compromising. We are a nation of low standards. We allow anybody to come into India and settle down and start claiming rights and all that. We need to raise our standards, like I keep saying on this on this show. We need to raise our standards. Right now, we are a nation of low standards. We keep compromising with. Uh, Intolerant people. We need to we need to crack down a little bit. Anyhow, that's the deal. They just says why is France falling? Why are there more and more civil wars in Europe? Good question. Now this is something I can speak about a little more openly. <laughs> uh, okay, so what, what's hap- what's the deal with France right now? We know uh, France is burning. Uh, Paris is burning lots of other cities you have like wide scale rioting happening you have individuals with automatic weapons who are firing there is vandalism there's arson I don't know what people I don't know if anyone's you know you've had casualties or not but yeah so apparently some immigrant male 17 years old was was asked by the police to stop and the guy did not. Listen to the cops and he tried to drive off and they shot him. So this is standard practice in the West. If a cop tells you to do something, you got to obey. If you don't obey, they can shoot you. That's just how it is in the West. So, and this individual, this boy, whoever he was, did not listen to the cops. So he got shot. And yeah, he happened to be, uh, you know, not an adult. He was 17. There are so many things that happen, you know. But there is no outrage about that. I mean, these so-called immigrants or whoever—they have been doing all kinds of crimes against the natives, and, and none of that, you know, evokes any outrage. But this issue suddenly—it—it—it it, it created this spontaneous outburst of rioting all across the length and the breadth of France. This is nonsense. This is clearly something that's coordinated and, and orchestrated now from where is it happening I don't know but I would not say that France is not to blame they have allowed so many so many immigrants into their nation at least I don't know if you look at the total population of France I would say 10 to 20 percent would be immigrants now and these people have never assimilated they have first of all never been allowed to assimilate properly they have always been treated as second class citizens there's a lot of racism okay so France is not blameless entirely. Uh, they have this terrible legacy of colonialism in North Africa in Algeria and other places parts of other parts of Africa. Uh, they did all kinds of brutalities and all that. They are still actively engaged in neo-colonization in large parts of Africa, the French, okay So they are not blameless and lots of these immigrants, uh, lots of these people from the former French colonies and other parts of Africa have settled in France. lots of north, Africans, Algerians, etc., and they are kind of marginalised. So they do feel disenfranchised. They do feel like the French don't treat them as like they are also French citizens. Even second generation, third generation immigrants, they still feel you know out, like outsiders. There is this angst. There is this anger. Their economic situation is not the same. It's it's quite different. There are these parts. Uh, there, there there are these suburbs in Paris, the banlieues where these which which are like ghetto like places there is crime there are parts of paris where the cops can't go yeah it sounds similar to what you some other things that you may have experienced yes there are parts of paris where the where the cops simply cannot go there are drug lords and so much happening there is so much crime hidden below the surface in France, in Paris. Paris is this great uh, tourist destination. Well, there are certain parts of Paris which are definitely not tourist destinations. You can visit the Champs-Élysées, the the Eiffel Tower, and whatever it is, whatever else. But yeah, so so that's the deal, you know. So that's the background to what's happening now. So this one immigrant was shot. I mean, maybe he was born there. I'm not sure what his life history is. Not not important. This fellow was shot, and then there was a spontaneous, apparently, outbursts of rioting all across France, which, you know, which is unnatural. When you have so many incidents of rioting happening at the same time, they all start at the same time. It's clearly something that's coordinated. So who's coordinating this? Who's providing the hidden leadership? Who's providing the funding? That's the question. Now, we have to understand this is not only something that's happening in France. We, have, we are seeing this all across Europe. Belgium is another issue. Belgium also has lots of Arabs and all kinds of immigrants. Germany has terrible issues. And these people, these nations have been importing boatloads and truckloads and busloads and God knows what else loads of immigrants typically from the Middle East, typically military-age males. You know, they call them refugees. You know what refugees look like? Refugees are helpless people. Refugees are women and children mostly. But these so-called refugees who are being imported into these nations are all young military-age males who come without their families, without any women and children. What's happening? It's unnatural. It's artificial. So why are nations like Germany and, and Italy... And uh, other nations, European nations, why are they absorbing? Why are they importing so many military-age uh, uh, immigrants? Why, and that too from only from the Middle East, from the nations that the Americans bomb and destroy, and then these nations uh, become, you know, the origin uh, originators of all these uh, immigrants and refugees. What's happening? So we have to understand that Europe is colonized by the Americans. The true power in Western Europe, the only power, the only real power in Western Europe is the United States. They dictate terms to all the European nations. And there are several European nations that are still under permanent U.S. military occupation. Italy is one, Germany is another. Italy and Germany, then this begins, when did this begin? 1945, end of the Second World War. Italy was defeated, Germany was defeated. These were the Axis powers along with Japan. Japan is also under permanent US military occupation. So you, if you if you go to the maps, okay, we have maps somewhere, let's go to maps. We, yes, yes, we, we have to see the map, right? On the Ask a Widget show, the map is one of the most important things. So let's go to Italy and uh, let us go to, where shall we go? Shall we go to, I don't remember where I am supposed to go. Is it Palermo? Is it Cagliari, Sardinia? I don't remember. But the point is, if you know where to look, you will find US military bases all across Europe. And when it comes to Italy and Germany, these are permanent military bases, which means these nations are under permanent US military occupation. The UK is a US vassal. You know, the UK became a proper US vassal during the Tony Blair prime ministership. He was called, uh, Tony Blair was was regarded as George W. Bush's poodle, pet poodle. It's a very uh, harsh thing to say about somebody, but it's not inaccurate. So the UK is a US vassal. They do whatever the Americans tell them. Germany has no option but to do what the Americans tell them. They are under permanent US military occupation. They cannot say no to the Americans. And, you know, there there are certain nations in Europe whose constitutions were either directly or indirectly written by the Americans. Or, or written by their own people who were puppets of the Americans, because it all happened with the Americans at a veto on the writing of these constitutions. Germany is one, Italy is another. And the Japanese constitution, as we know, was entirely written in 1945 by the Americans and not a word has changed. So, France uh, France, and, and the EU nations and Nat- the NATO nations are essentially all under the thumb or under the boots of the US and What's really happening is the Americans are forcing these nations, I, that's what it looks like, to absorb military age male refugees from the war torn Middle East, from the nations that the Americans have bombed to dust. And by doing so, they are destabilizing Europe. Why would they destabilize Europe? Well, Europe in the long run, is a threat to the Americans. Germany has always been a major power in the last century and a half, ever since Otto von Bismarck unified Germany. right? Germany is a long-term threat from the American perspective. If Germany rises again, it's a problem. We don't want a new Reich, <laughs> Reich coming out of Germany. So why not destabilize Germany? Why not create a disaster, demographic disaster in these nations? So that's what they're trying to do the, the destroying of the Nord Stream pipeline, allegedly by America. Allegedly, you know, that also serves to destabilize Germany and create a recession in Germany. And Germany has now entered a recession. So, all these so suppose, you know, all these uh, disturbances, civil war like situations, these nations they are being forced to absorb refugees, even the Nordic nations like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, etc., they're absorbing bucket loads, truck loads, boat loads, whatever loads of refugees, of immigrants, who have no desire to assimilate. You know, when somebody goes to start a new life in a new country, you are supposed to respect the local culture and try to assimilate into the local population. Learn the language, learn the lifestyle, way of life, learn the um, customs and all that, and respect that. You have to become one of them. But these immigrants who come there have no desire to do that. They want to impose their own way of life. On these European nations, and that's being done by design. So you know, all these refugees right now—they're coming into Italy. Lots of them came to Germany. All of that is being this is this is you know uh, social reengineering of these uh, so- societies. I think it's all being done by the U.S. I mean, there's no r- real evidence, but it all—all all these immigrants come from the nations that the Americans have bombed to dust. It's either Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan. And sometimes there are lots of Pakistanis who come there because, you know, Pakistan, who wants to live in Pakistan? You know, sadly. yeah. So that's what's happening. And I see more of this happening now. I don't see this uh, slowing down. I, I expect more of this to happen. Belgium, you had, you know, these, those, they, remember, remember the terrible airport bomb blast? Bomb attack on the airport a few years ago. Uh, so yeah, that issue is there in Belgium as well. So all these European nations are, what's the right word? They are, they are, not doomed, but they are they are going towards a doom, unfortunately. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's see. Uh, what other questions do we have? Uh, Matteo Perez says, Refugees is great for population growth, which helps with pension payouts for European countries. They help pay the taxes. Does Europe need population growth? And, you know... Uh, Pension payouts for European countries. Well, who's, from where is that? Let's say you have a refugee, a new refugee who is, newly minted refugee who has come to, let's say Belgium. Now this person is, he has no money. He's a young guy, he has no money, he he doesn't know the local language. It's going to take him, let's say, six months to learn the local language. And all he can do is construction work or something. And maybe there isn't even that available right now. So then the government has to support this guy. So where does the money come from? It comes from the taxpayer, right? So it actually is a burden on the host nation. And do these nations need population growth? I know the birth rates are dropping and all, but I mean it's it's not the right way to, to you know stabilize a population or make a population grow. The US also absorbs immigrants, but those are not refugees. They have a very strict screening procedure. Was I wrong? Yeah, after the Biden administration came into place, they've essentially opened up the southern border, the Texas and all that border. And God knows who all is coming in. They are trying to re-engineer the demographics of the US as well. So, yeah. So it's it's a mess it's an absolute mess that's that's all i can say about this you know it's an absolute mess and there's a lesson for us to learn in india we have to have standards you can't just allow anybody to come into india and you know start claiming rights and citizenship and all that which is kind of what's happening right now uh, lots we know the situation with bangladesh don't we porous borders open borders we have the bsf on the borders but we know well, let's let's not open that Pandora's box of the BSF in Bengal. So, so I, I think millions of Bangladeshis have poured into India. They're all across India now, in all the major cities. I don't know how many Rohingyas were settled into India. These are the standards our governments have had in the past. Um, and we know the situation in Manipur. Lacks of Burmese cookies have poured into Manipur in the past few decades. They were settled by the Indian government in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and then the last few years also, apparently all of this has happened. So we need to raise our standards. We can't just allow anybody to come into India and start claiming citizenship. We need to learn from what's happening in Europe. Alright. Alright. Uh, let's see what other questions we have. Um, Let's see. Dikshit Balachandran says, why have so many Buddha statues been excavated from Kerala? Did Buddhism get suppressed? You know, Indian history is thousands of years long. Buddhism, the Lord Buddha, Gautam Buddha, was he lived, as far as we know, two and a half thousand years ago. And there was an entire phase of Buddhism in India, when both the Dharma, that particular flavor of Dharma became the dominant brand of Dharma in, 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 in India. And that was, of course, engineered by the Mauryan emperors, in the, starting from Ashoka, one of the greatest emperors of India, and one of the, yeah, you know. So uh, there was a time in India when almost everybody practiced what we now call Buddhism. You know that particular flavor or brand or 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 variety of dharma. And then different times happened, and times changed, and you know. Then Adi Shankaracharya came to the fore and he once again uh, brought a different flavor or or brand or variety of Dharma to the fore. So these are natural events. These happen over time. It's not something that that happened over a week's time. It, It took centuries. So there is no suppression, there is this entire narrative that has been created, you know, like I said some time ago, there are so many divisions that have been created within India, artificial divisions, they have separated Buddhism from Dharma, they have separated Jainism from Dharma, yeah, so now Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism are three separate religions apparently, and Sikhism also. 50 years ago, they were all, it was all part of Dharma, but now we see everything is separate, so Whoever is doing this, it's the academics, the education system, they are trying to create more and more divisions within India. And they have created this this narrative that Buddhism was brutally suppressed by Hindu kings, by Brahmins, apparently. This is all nonsense. And I don't blame people for for wondering about this and, and asking these questions, because this is what we have been taught This is what our education system teaches us for for about two decades of our life. So we absorb this every single day, every single year. Our teachers keep telling us this nonsense. Maybe they also believe this. Maybe they also went through this nonsense. So that's why this narrative has been created today, that Buddhism was suppressed, brutally, which is a lie. Which is a lie. Society changes over time. Society evolves over time. And before the advent of the foreign colonizers like the Turks and the the Europeans, it all happened slowly, gradually, naturally, organically over centuries. So Buddhism was never suppressed. It just went out of vogue. It just went out of vogue over time. Right? And Buddhism, you know, what was this guy's name? Alan Watts. Alan Watts said that Buddhism is Hinduism stripped down for export. So it is a truncated and 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 more basic version of Hinduism which is stripped down for export because Hinduism is so com- complex and complicated that most outsiders can't understand it. They can't grasp it. So you have to oversimplify it so that outsiders can understand it. So that's what Buddhism is. So that's why Buddhism be- became very prominent later on in the East, East of India. So all the uh, regions of Eastern Asia that were once Hindu eventually became Buddhist. So if you look at the great temple of Angkor Wat, it was a Vishnu temple. And Buddha is regarded as an avatar of Vishnu. So it later became a Buddhist temple. It's the largest Hindu temple in the world. So it was It was a Hindu temple, a Shaivite temple, but eventually it was used for Buddhist practices as well. And so on. You have, so... Later on, China became what we call Buddhist. Later on, Japan became Buddhist. But if you see Japanese Buddhism today, they worship all the gods that are that are Hindu gods. You know, they worship uh, Kubera, they worship Lord Shiva, they worship Ganesha, they worship Saraswati, Lakshmi. All the gods and goddesses of Hinduism are part of Japanese Buddhism. So there is no real difference, first of all, between Buddhism and Hinduism. The the value system is exactly the same. The morality is exactly the same. The lifestyle is exactly the same. But there are tiny differences, you know, in the philosophy and the text and all that. And that's what these tiny 2% or 1% differences are blown out of proportion. So it is something that happened naturally and organically over centuries. Buddhism was never suppressed. And there was a time when much of India practiced what we call Buddhism. So you will find Buddha statues everywhere in the country. And unfortunately, most of the Buddha statues, especially in the northern north part northern part of India, are headless. I wonder why. Anyhow, so let's see other questions. Um, what do we have? What do we have? Mm, let us see. What oh, I can't snipe says. How did the Zoroastrians of Persia? get mostly wiped out of persia even though the religion was of one which was dominant for millennia and how can how did hinduism resist such uh, such uh, terrible events and such a brutal faith uh persia is if you look at the map i'm, I'm not sure if people know the map but let's take a look right uh, persia is present day iran more or less you know so historically india was all the way up to afghanistan tajikistan when chinggis khan the great shri chinggis khan invaded uh he went on his Khwarazm campaign and then he entered India. At that time, the border of India was at present-day border of Tajikistan and Afghanistan. And west of Afghanistan and present-day Pakistan, temporarily, we have Iran, which is Persia. So if you can see, Iran is much smaller than the Indian subcontinent. So, and And it's right next to what is now called Saudi Arabia so the arabs were able to invade very rapidly and they were able to defeat the persian empire rapidly i forget the name of the last sassanian king you can look it up uh, so because iran was so homogeneous and much smaller than india and it's very flat and you know it's it's not that difficult to invade and conquer as you can see it's there are very few forests and all that there are mountains zagros mountains and all but so on so Iran essentially fell very rapidly and the Arabs who conquered Iran were able to impose their faith, their religion on the natives within a matter of a couple of decades, two or three decades. So within two or three decades, most Iranians, most Persians had been converted to uh, the religion of the Arabs. And some of these people, they chose not to give up the religion, so they fled to India by sea. And they were welcomed in India and they were given shelter and refuge and their descendants still live in India and they still practice Zoroastrianism. And there were some Zoroastrians who in Iran who refused to give up Zoroastrianism and they were persecuted very badly and I suppose they're still persecuted for their faith. Uh, So that's the thing. So their religion was dominant, uh, I think, let's say 1000 BC is when it starts. As we don't quite know when Zarathustra lived, but let's say 1000 BC. So, 1000 BC to 0, so it the, the religion was predominant in Persia for about 1600, 1700 years, minimum. And then it, it was right out. And where did Zoroastrianism, where did the religion of Zarathustra emerge from? It emerged out of the ancient Vedic religion, which was the predominant religion in in uh, all of India and Persia, the Persians were descendants of ancient Indians. So that's the whole thing. Uh, so that's what happened. How did Hinduism resist this? India is much more complicated, much more, much larger, and for whatever reason, see, Hinduism is a decentralized religion. There is no pope. There is no head. You know, it's not a pyramidal structure, top-down uh, hierarchy, that sort of thing. Hinduism is completely decentralised, and that's the reason why even if they conquered large parts of India, there was no pope, there was no structure, organised structure, there was no coordination. So Hinduism survived wherever it existed. So that is a great strength as well as a great weakness of Hinduism, because of the great, because of the completely decentralised uh, structure of Hinduism, Hinduism survived despite. The, despite the entire subcontinent coming under under foreign occupation uh, for about a thousand years. Of, of course, we know what happened in Afghanistan. The Afghans were all Hindus and Buddhists, and see what happened. Is there a single Buddhist or Hindu alive there today? I guess not. If there are any, there must be a handful. Uh, so that's what happened in Afghanistan. We know what happened in Kashmir. But much of India, we still have the the old ancestral culture and religion that still exist, and much of it exists outside of, outside of India as well east of India so, so this decentralization that we have in Hinduism is a great strength as well as a great weakness it allowed Hinduism to survive the thousand years roughly of foreign occupation in various parts of India but it's also something that uh, you know keeps the people who follow this faith They it keeps them disunited Hinduism is so complex there are so many different varieties and flavors of Hinduism that people see that as you know being different from each other. And you know that that's what causes problems as well. So, yeah, that's the deal. <clears throat> okay, Tanmai says, What's your theory of what was there before the Big Bang? I personally think nothing was present before the Big Bang as part of Vedanta says Brahman was there. Can you expect convergent evolution? Let's talk about the Big Bang. I don't know what Vedanta says, you know vedanta and the, the vedas are not scientific texts we have our own cosmology of uh, uh, you know how our our uh, ancestors imagined evolution to have happened the evolution of the Im- universe and the time scales that we have in in hindu cosmology are kind of you know the only time scales that ma- make sense on a cosmological scale billions of years maybe trillions of years that sort of thing uh so in my theory what was there before the big bang i have no theory of what was there before the Big Bang, because we have no data. All the data that we have is from after the Big Bang, the so-called Big Bang. So I have no idea whatsoever. I can't even start to speculate about what was there before the Big Bang. Um, so yeah, listen, Vedanta is, is is spirituality. It is religion. It is philosophy. It's religion, philosophy, spirituality cannot mix with science. You simply cannot mix the two things. These are completely incompatible and science also cannot talk about religion or spirituality or philosophy so it is completely wrong for a scientist to to pass opinions about stuff about things that are not that are beyond science and once again in the same way it is wrong for for people who don't have an understanding of science <laughs> to pass judgment on science based on philosophy and spirituality and religion these things cannot mix so, uh, to answer your question in brief, I have absolutely no idea of what was there before the Big Bang because we don't have any data. Any data. Science is all about data. If you have data, if you have... Uh, then, the, from on the basis of data, you can make a theory. But if you have no data, there can be no theory. There can only be pure speculation, which is pointless from a scientific perspective. All right. Let's see some more questions. Why don't the Japanese people... Uh, Abhishek asks... Why don't the Japanese people have any hatred towards the Americans due to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II? Good question. Good question. And you know, Japan is still under permanent US occupation. The Americans have more than 120 or more than 130 permanent military bases in Japan. Lots of them, in, lots of it is in Okinawa, for example. You can look at the map and find the bases. Yeah. Kadena base and so on and so forth. So why don't the Japanese hate the Americans? Well, why don't why don't Indians hate the British or the Turks, the occupiers and destroyers of India? Why? It's the same question. It's because of the education system and the narratives that are created by the media and the politicians. So in Japan, you have a constitution. The constitution was written by the Americans. In 1945, it was imposed upon Japan undemocratically. And that's the constitution that's still in force. Not a single word has been changed. Secondly, the Japanese education system is also something that's totally influenced by the Americans. And the Japanese are taught from day one, when they are three years old, or whenever you start, what, kindergarten, nursery, whatever, they are taught a pacifistic ideology in the education system. And they are made to believe that the Americans are great benevolent, uh, you know, uh, people and uh, Japan was wrong I'm sure it was wrong in certain things but whatever right so uh, so it's the education system that uh, brainwashes people into believing things uh, and that's essentially what it is so if you are taught the true history of what happened you got to be taught the correct accurate history Japan did lots of terrible things in World War II, no doubt about it but I would not agree that they were entirely completely 100% wrong. The, their major... Where they went wrong is that they lost. So the Americans won. And because the Americans won, all of their war crimes have been whitewashed away. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were nuclear tests on civilians. It's, it's... I mean, how more... Can you even be possibly more barbaric and brutal? So... Because they won, all their war crimes have been covered up. And because the Japanese lost, all of their war crimes have been, you know, uh, they they are they are talked about and they are highlighted. And similarly with, with Germany. I'm not saying the Germans were good people. I mean, the Nazis were good people. Obviously, they were not good people. They were terrible. Hitler was a monster. Killed, I don't know how many Jews and uh, Romani gypsies, right? The Romani people. Yeah, so... So, you know, war is complicated, geopolitics is complicated, there is no right, there is no real right or wrong. I mean, if we, I, I, I agree that the Japanese did uh, terrible war crimes, Nanjing is a horrible example. I don't even want to think about Nanjing, what they did in Nanjing, uh, and other brutalities in, in Eastern Asia and all that. Uh, but so did the Americans, so does every empire. Every empire indulges in brutality, every empire indulges in war crimes. Uh, so when it comes to the Japanese people, they are taught from childhood that the Americans uh, did a good thing, that the Americans uh, saved Japan from the from from its rulers of the of the World War II era, and now Japan is on the right path. Japan is a pacifistic nation; uh, they all believe in pacifism and all that. There is a fringe, you know, a marginalised fringe in Japan that is nationalistic, but that is frowned upon very strongly. So that's the thing. So that's why the Japanese don't have any hatred towards the Americans. So that's that's how sheep live, unfortunately. It's, it's very sad. I'm not saying they should hate anyone, but they should realize that they are under foreign occupation since 1945. And they should realize that what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was brutal, horrific war crimes, un- unforgivable war crimes. But they don't realize it. Because that's what the education system has done to them. And that's what actually you also see in India. That's also what you see in India as well. Yeah, anyway. Tibetan PUBG player says your opinion on Tibetan refugees like myself, like like this person over here what's my opinion? I think it's very sad that Tibetans uh, have to live outside of their homeland, Tibet I think it's very sad what's happening in Tibet Lhasa is a city where you have uh, well, there are more Han Chinese in Tibet than, than native Tibetans now, right? It's terrible Lhasa has discotheques and, and I don't know what bars and casinos and worse. That's what it, they did to the holy city of Lhasa, and uh, the they use Tibet. They extract all the resources out of Tibet, the the water and what whatever else is there. So yeah, it's, it's it's sad. It's terrible, and this is something that our government, India's government, allowed to happen. They allowed the Chinese to do this. They allowed the Chinese to invade and conquer Tibet in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. They actually, it was the great Mr. Nehru who was in power at the time, the Nehruvian regime. And the Chinese were starving because they were so far away from China. They were were so badly overstretched. So Mr. Nehru generously provided lots of rice to the starving starving Chinese soldiers. And that's how the Chinese are able to conquer Tibet. Thanks to the great Mr. Nehru. That's why you, you have Tibetans who are forced to live in exile outside of their homeland. And thankfully... Mr. Nehru also allowed the Tibetan refugees to come into India and they were given shelter in India, which is something that we have always done in India. We have always given shelter to people who need, need shelter. So uh, so I think the only place that Tibetan culture truly survives is now India. And in other There are Tibetans in the West and other, other countries as well, but it properly survives only in India. So I... I, my opinion is that Tibetan refugees are always welcome. You are one of us. You, this is your home now, for now at least. Eventually, uh, I hope that Tibet will be free again, maybe by 2050. We can make it happen, I suppose, if India rises. And then I hope that uh, the Tibetans who live in India, who are born in India, will have the option of staying in India, if they wish, or, to, or going back to Tibet. Or maybe be, being... If Tibet is liberated, we could have the kind of arrangement that we have with Nepal. So India and Nepal are two separate nations, two separate administrations but we have an open border and Nepalese people do not need a passport or do not need a visa to come to India. They can just cross over and they can work in India and live in India as long as they want. There are no restrictions. And the same thing applies to Indians as well. And Nepalese are the only uh, people... Who are given the uh, privilege of serving in the Indian Army, so that's the only other nationality that is given this privilege, and we also have the T- Indo-Tibetan Border Police, right? ITBP. So I think when Tibet is eventually liberated, we will have we will we will most likely have a similar kind of arrangement like the one we have with Nepal, an open border and no restrictions or any of any kind. So I think that happens eventually. So until that happens, uh, I. I i think i speak on behalf of all indians saying that tibetans are welcome in india and tibetans uh, you know they they don't have this attitude of other refugees that uh, we are special and we need special rights and privileges and you need to the kind of like what we see in europe what's happening in france and other parts of parts of europe and all that you know refugees who come in and then they they refuse to assimilate and they try to impose their lifestyle on the natives. The Tibetans have never done this. So, that's something I really appreciate about it, because it's the same culture actually. Uh, Tibetan culture is essentially a local, very beautiful local manifestation of Indian culture. It's the same value system, the same the same values, the same philosophy. It's Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, right? So, it's the same culture. So, there are no cultural clashes or any such thing. So, yeah. So, Yeah, that's my opinion about Tibetan refugees. All right, let's see what else do we have. Um, One Shuranga says, what should I choose between the commerce stream and and the science stream? I will be making a decision soon. I would appreciate your opinion. Well, I don't know you. I appreciate that you asked me this question, but I do not know you, unfortunately, personally. I do not know your strengths and and your weaknesses. Everybody has some strengths and some weaknesses. Everybody has. Everybody has certain aptitudes. Everybody has this unique set of characteristics. I don't know what yours are. So I cannot tell you. Unless I know you reasonably well, I cannot tell you what's right for you. So that is a decision, a choice that you have to make yourself. We need people in the commerce stream We need people in the science stream as well. If you are in the science stream, you can either become a scientist or a teacher or a professor or you could go into business and, and, you know, into engineering or something and and do stuff for the nation or you could become an engineer or you could start an engineering firm or, or, you know, a defense uh, equipment manufacturing firm, or you could go into, in, into computer science or whatever. So you, we need people in the science stream, but we also need entrepreneurs and business people and people who are great at commerce. So we need both of these. All of this is important. So it's up to you. You have to introspect, you know, take some time and think about it. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are you good at? What are you not so good at? And where could you in 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 what cap- capacity could you best serve society, best serve the nation, and and rise to the fullest of your potential? You have to ask yourself these questions. Take some time to do that, and then I suppose I I hope and you can take the the advice of your family members, your elders, your well wishers, and then make the decision yourself. So that's what I would tell you. Without knowing you, I cannot tell you which stream to take. But uh, so do this. And all the best. <clears throat> okay, let's see what other questions we have. One Shraj Bhatti says, please shed some light on the history of the Gujars and the controversy between the Gujars and the controversy between Rajputs and Gujars. I don't see any controversy. This is what I keep talking about. We are so divided among ourselves. Rajput versus Gujjar and Gujjar versus Gurjar and all this. What's the point of all this nonsense? I just don't get it. Why are we constantly fighting amongst each other? Always some new controversy. It doesn't matter who's what. So historically, there was something called Gurdjardesh. Let's put it on the map. So what was Gurdjardesh? We go to Western India. There was historically a region of India which was called Rajputana, right? That region came to be known as Rajputana, which is present-day Rajasthan and Gujarat. That entire region of Western India was called Rajputana. And within Rajputana, there was this region called Gurjardesh, which is is the Mount Abu region, Binmal, all this. So, northern Gujarat and southern Rajasthan, that was Gurjardesh. And the people who lived in this region were called the Gurjars. Gurjars could, some of them, it was a geographical thing. Right? So, even a person who belonged to one of the 32 Rajput clans, who lived in Gurjardesh would have been called a Gurjar. Now there is something called Gujars, also, which is apparently a different ethnicity. So I, I I have this podcast, this conversation with Virendra Singh Rathor on this channel, in which we have gone into this matter about the Rajput versus Gujar thing, Gurjar thing. So, yeah, you can take a look at that. But my main point is: why keep why do we keep fighting amongst each other? It doesn't matter what your ancestry is you're indian right you got to work together why do we just keep on fighting amongst each other about small little matters that's what i mean your sub-national identity is more important than your national identity and you keep fighting about based on these things and i don't know who creates and who foments these fights but it's a constant thing you see and it's it's tiresome for me and i'm just uh, feel frustrated when I see people fighting about these inconsequential matters. It doesn't matter. We all have the same blood. We all have the same DNA. You know? So we got to stop fighting. If you take, (laughs) if you do a DNA analysis of a Rajput, of a person who has Rajput ancestry, one of the 32 or 36 Rajput clans, and a person who identifies as a Gujar or Gurjar, you will see no difference. You will see no difference whatsoever. So this is all a waste of time. Completely. Mm. All right. Krishna says, will the dying superpower USA do any wars in the future? Oh, yeah. When a superpower... what's What do you mean by superpower? Superpower is a euphemism for an empire. So the US is a superpower. It's also an empire. It's the largest empire the world has ever known. And history tells us... That's why I say study history. That's when you will understand geopolitics, if you if you study history properly. So, history tells us that whenever an empire starts declining, it lashes out. It tries its best to not disappear. And how do you do that? When you become desperate, you start a war. You go to war. So, the more desperate you are, the more likely you are to go to war. So, the US is a, a declining superpower. Yes? There's no doubt about it. It's declining. Its influence is declining. Its power hasn't declined yet, but its influence is certainly declining. So these are uh, not good signs for a for a for an empire when it's when people no longer respect you. No, they're no longer they still are afraid of you, but they don't respect you anymore. Today, the U.S. has become the world's laughing stock in in a variety of ways. So when a superpower or empire declines, it lashes out. It goes to war. So I think the U.S. will engage itself in many more wars or, or start many more many more wars in the future the major export <clears throat> see every nation has, ex- has certain things that they export right and the major export of the united states is war because it's you know it has this enormous military industrial complex that uh, you know manufactures weapons that designs and develops and manufactures weapons and for this military industrial complex to remain profitable and viable you need wars across the world so you start wars and then you sell weapons to both parties or to one party and that's how you pro- keep profiting so uh, so the us actually uh, it profits from war so I think they will <coughs> <excuse> me <coughs> they will either engineer more wars or they may themselves get involved in wars in the future. Shaheen says, What are the major factors and causes of the decline of Hinduism in Southeast Asia? Now the island of Bali and some other pockets of the Cham Hindus left in South Vietnam and Cambodia. Apart from that, there is no more Hinduism in Southeast Asia. The major cause of the decline of Hinduism in Eastern Asia was the decline of India itself. See Hinduism, the birthplace of Dharma and Hinduism, Buddhism, all of that, the birthplace is India, the Indian subcontinent. And from the Indian subcontinent, see here's the Indian subcontinent, you can see where it is. It's at the center of Asia. It has this God gifted position in the center of the Indian Ocean region. and. Hinduism and and Indian culture and Dharma were exported out of India in various directions, starting from the time of Emperor Ashoka. Then later, Emperor Kanishka also did a lot of this. So, Emperor Ashoka focused on the West to a significant extent. He he exported, uh, you know, Indian culture all the way to Greece and also to Suvarnabhumi and Lanka and all that. Suvarnabhumi was essentially today's Thailand. But it was Kanishka, Emperor Kanishka, who came about, I don't know, four or five centuries later, roughly, look it up. So it was Kanishka who exported Dharma eastwards into China and all the way, eventually, it went into Japan. So, the epicenter, the the, the heartland of Dharma, of, of Hinduism, was the Indian subcontinent. and And when it comes to southeast asia thailand vietnam cambodia Laos all that place all these places hinduism was exported to these regions by the great merchants of kalinga this started at least 3000 years before today kalinga is totally forgotten today when it comes to the great uh, it's its great influence the the in, in enormous influence it has had not only on india culturally but on much of the world culturally especially east asia kalinga is today's orissa when we talk about Utkal, Utkal is Uttarakalinga. So, all of that, right? So, the heartland of Hinduism and Dharma overall is the Indian subcontinent. And all of Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia, was it came under Indian influence. Uh, whether it is uh, Indonesia, all of Indonesia was Hindu. All of Thailand, Cambodia, the Southeast Asian regions, all of that was Hindu. China and Japan and Korea and all were Buddhist nominally, but there is a lot of Hindu influence there also. So all of this was made possible because of the uh, predominance and preeminence of India, culturally and economically and militarily. But Indian culture was never exported through military means. It was always done through, uh, through cultural diffusion, primarily done by traders and merchants. Uh, so that's how it was so once india itself declined in the past 1000 years because india came under foreign occupation starting with the turks and then the europeans once india started declining the the influence started uh, across the rest of asia also started declining so that's why hinduism declined in southeast asia there are some pockets left where is bali bali is here here it is you see bali this here is Bali, this island here. And there are some Hindus, the Cham, Cham Hindus in uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, etc. So, yeah, that's what happened. So, it was the decline of India that led, led to the decline of Indian influence and culture in much of Asia. So, Indonesia eventually became uh, Islamic, so did Malaysia, uh, and so on. So, these nations then eventually went their own way, and they that's what happened. So it was the decline of India that caused this. All right, let's see some other questions. Um, Okay, Umar Umar says, "Dear Abijitha, thank you, sir. Uh, Would you support a confederation between India, Pakistan, Bangladesh? What are the pros and cons of each nation?" Umar Nizam from Dhaka, Bangladesh, host of the Book Cafe Podcast. Um. It's a good question. I would not support a confederation, especially with Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, See, the reason for this is the people of Pakistan are, are, they are taught to hate India. It's it's something that's taught from the day they are born. They have this visceral, most, I'm not saying all of the Pakistanis. I'm sure there are Pakistanis who don't hate India as well. But overall, the majoritarian position is that India is the number one enemy. This, this There is a visceral, deep-rooted hatred for India. And Pakistan, we know what's happened over the past three, four decades, especially after Ziaul Haq came to power. Pakistan has become the world's, major. like I said, every nation has a major export. The US exports war, Pakistan exports terrorism. Pakistan is the world's terrorism epicenter, terror central. You simply cannot have a confederation with open borders, let's say, with a nation like that. We, in India, don't want to have anything to do with Pakistan. Pakistan is an issue that's left over from history. The British created Pakistan. They, they divided the Indian subcontinent into all these you know separate nations. So it's a temporary situation. Eventually, Pakistan will disintegrate. Uh, it's being propped up by foreign powers. Just recently, I think yesterday, they got a new IMF bailout, $3 billion or whatever. So they will not allow Pakistan to fail because they need Pakistan as a counterbalance to India. They need it to keep on uh, keep India off balance. So Pakistan is a hostile nation, its entire raison d'etre, its reason for existing is to counterbalance India and to keep India off balance and to keep needling and pricking and bleeding India. You can't have a confederation between India and Pakistan. When it comes to Bangladesh, eventually it, I think it will happen. Uh, Once again, the issue is that uh, there are lots of Bangladeshis also. I'm not saying all Bangladeshis. There are lots of wonderful Bangladeshis who see India as... as, Well, we are the same eventually, aren't aren't we? Bangladesh was part of Bengal. Bangladesh. Angadesh from the Mahabharat times. So we all are the same people. But once again, there is this issue. There are are some Bangladeshis, certain sections of Bangladeshi society, who have a great hatred for India and who, who see more of a common cause with Pakistan. Uh, So, there's this issue as well. These issues will all overall be resolved with time. It won't happen immediately. I think India and Bangladesh are already cooperating to a very significant extent. Uh, That's why the Americans want regime change in Bangladesh. They want to, uh, you know, they, they want to depose Sheikh Hasina. The Americans want regime change in Bangladesh. And they they are, you know, we can see signs and symptoms of that happening. So India and Bangladesh already have excellent relations. And the relations will only improve over time. And eventually, I have no doubt that the subcontinent overall entirely will reunify, but it will take maybe 100 years. It won't happen as far as I can see during my lifetime or our lifetimes. But let's say by 2100, or 2150, things may be very different. Eventually, the subcontinent will reunify and reunite. That's that's going to happen. So I think it's not something we should rush into or try to engineer because it will create problems which we don't want. I think the situation that we have between India and Bangladesh is already very good. We have Indians who there are, there are Indians who study in Bangladesh, you know, medical colleges and all, all that, and there are Bangladeshi people who come to India for studies as well. And tourism is there lots of stuff is there so uh, when it comes to India and Bangladesh I think the situation is great it will only keep on improving there are certain issues that obviously my my viewers will be talking about that there is illegal immigration and all okay eventually it will all be resolved because it will be resolved but Pakistan is a different issue so Pakistan will have to disintegrate first which it will naturally do Uh, there are too many centrifugal forces within Pakistan that are tearing it apart it's being held together artificially by the west but it will eventually break up i think sooner rather than later and then it will eventually naturally uh, evolve in, into, into a different kind of uh, kind of a bunch of nations and eventually we will be able to reintegrate it into india so uh, pros and cons for each nation the con when it comes to pakistan is terrorism and hatred for india so that's a huge con when it comes to Bangladesh and India the cons are less pros are more eventually so I think India and Bangladesh could could have a confederation much before much before anything like that could happen with Pakistan all right um, authentic historical books about Napoleon Bonaparte to read uh, listen I am very bad with book recommendations because I've read so many books I can't remember the names they are all the knowledge, all the information, all the data that I've absorbed over time it eventually amalgamates and I don't have any specific book recommendation to give Uh, what I would suggest is go to Amazon or Flipkart or whatever you know, your favorite uh, online retailer search for Napoleon in in the book section and see which book has the highest number of 4 plus star ratings that would be a good place to start Right? Uh, I have a book or two somewhere here, but I'll not go into that right now. So, there are lots of good books about Napoleon. Uh, So, yeah, do that. Go to Amazon or Flipkart or wherever. See the best books. Lots of four-star plus reviews, and that will be a good place to start. And it's it's never enough to read one book. You've got to read more. At least, like, three, four books to have a reasonably well-rounded understanding of a subject. Um what do we have, what else do we have Um, Naiba, whatever the name is (laughs) what are the chances of Modi winning the next election I think Modi is still in pole position to win the next election obviously there are foreign forces that don't want this to happen uh, primarily in the West but I think uh, I I would say that the government should not become complacent uh, like kind of the way the Vajpayee government became complacent a little bit, one would say, you know, with reasonable uh, accuracy, you know, in 2004, they were very confident they would win and they, lost. they ended up losing. So that sort of complacency should never creep in. There are lots of challenges, lots of issues. You see what's happening in Manipur. I, I would say that it's being fomented by outside, outside external forces to keep India off balance. So there are going to be these challenges. I have said this, that the Breaking India forces will intensify in their actions in the run-up to the 24 elections. They will try their best to make the Prime Minister look bad and weak. And what's happening in Manipur is a symptom of that. They want to make the government look weak. Right? So, um, I I think Mr. Modi should win the next election, and I hope he wins. But I hope that the government doesn't become too complacent. They, should not take anything for granted. That's what I would say. All right. <laughs> what else do we have? What else? What else? What else? Mzak says, do you think Bose could have persuaded Jinnah away from partition if, if he was in India in the 1940s? So there's no persuading somebody. Jinnah, who really crafted and implemented the partition of India. It wasn't Jinnah. It was the British. They used Jinnah as an excuse. They used him as a puppet, as a prop. They they always wanted to partition India. That's always been their policy of the Anglo-Saxon Empire. Before you leave a colony, you break it into pieces. Right? So they always wanted to partition India. So Jinnah was simply an excuse. He was in London. He was in England for, for a decade. He came back to India in the 1930s with a new zeal and a new objective. So where did it come from? They say that he read Mustafa Kemal Ataturk's biography written by H.C. Armstrong. And that that could be a cause, that could be a factor which, which gave him new zeal and gave him the idea of breaking India and creating a Pakistan out of it. But overall, it was the British who did this. So it, it was not about persuading. If... if if somebody would have persuaded Jinnah to give this up, they would have found somebody else to be the leader, the British. They would have found somebody else to be the leader of the Pakistan movement. So it is the, the country was not partitioned because of one man, Jinnah. He was simply the figurehead of the partition thing. The British partitioned India. So if you wanted to stop the partition of India, you had to defeat the British. So we had an opportunity in 1946, when we had the Indian naval rebellion against the British. And Mr. Gandhi and Mr. Patel jinxed it, they nixed it in the bud. You know, they they made promises, they first of all demoralized the Indian naval sailors and officers, and they made false promises which were immediately broken. So had the rebellion of 1946 succeeded, it would have succeeded had the Indian army come to know about it. So it was a matter of time before it happened. So they had to act very fast and persuade the rebels, the naval rebels, to give up, to to abandon the rebellion. So in 1946, if that rebellion had succeeded, India would have never been partitioned, because they would have acquired freedom through force, through strength, instead of being given freedom on, on British terms, on a platter. And what happened was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. So it was not about persuading Jinnah. If you had persuaded Jinnah, do you think partition would not have happened? What nonsense. They would have thrown swept Jinnah aside and found themselves a new figurehead for the partition movement. Uh, so yeah, that's the thing. So for partition to not happen, either the 1946 rebellion should have succeeded or Bose or the other situation scenario is that Bose would have succeeded in conquering India from the east, which did not happen. So, yeah, that's the thing. Sabana says, "What do you think about the Titan submersible?" So, yeah, that that disaster. So, which year did the Titanic sink? Somewhere in the nineteen tens, something like that. Uh, and I think more than a thousand people died in that. And then in twenty twenty three, three uh, I don't know, six more people died. In the same location roughly so so that was the titan not the titanic the submersible the submarine so what do i think i think it was a disaster uh it was not a well engineered submersible it had lots of structural issues first of all its hull was made of fiberglass you want something stronger than fiberglass when you have a submersible every submarine Based on the material it's made of and the various engineering characteristics, every submarine has something called a crush depth. It's the depth beyond at at which the submarine implodes because of the pressure of the ocean, of the water. So, every submarine has a crush depth, and every submarine has has an operating depth below which you should not go. It can still go below that, but eventually you will reach crush depth at which point the submarine simply implodes because it can no longer withstand the pressure of the Ocean, and so if you want to construct a submarine that can do really deep dives, then you need to have sufficiently strong material for the hull and sufficiently good engineering. And clearly, this Titan submers- submersible was deficient in both the engineering as well as the the strength of the hull. And it, I think, they had done a lot of cost cutting and cutting corners and all that. Uh, the guy, the 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 ceo or the owner of the company he refused to hire competent engineers because they were white apparently i mean what nonsense <laughs> doesn't make any sense but that's what he did and used very basic equipment like like a, i don't know what a gaming controller to control the submersible and all that so there were there was a lot of cost cutting a lot of cutting corners a lot of shortcuts were taken and yeah eventually you know we know what happened it 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 imploded so yeah it was an avoidable tragedy. But well, that's what it is. It's a lesson for future people, future engineers to learn. Okay, what else? Mm. Pawan Gauker says, you use the word greatest empire the world has ever witnessed for America. Whom does? But whom does this empire serve? Surely it does not serve all parts of its empire. No, it serves the people who control the empire. An empire doesn't serve everybody. Let's take the example of an empire. The Roman Empire controlled the entire Mediterranean region. Let's go to the map. So, if we look at the Roman Empire, initially its uh, capital was Rome, and it controlled much of Europe. So, the whole of the whole of Iberia, which is today's Spain. They had conquered uh, the British Isles. They had conquered Gaul, which is France, much of Germany, all the way east up to Judea, which is present day Israel, Lebanon, Syria, all that, much of present day Turkey, Egypt they had conquered, and Northern Africa as well. All right? So, did the Roman Empire serve all the people who lived in this region? No. It did not. <coughs> it exploited these conquered territories for resources. And the purpose was to enrich Rome itself. So the people of Rome, they had very high standards of living, good quality of life. But even within Rome, it was only the elites you know, who actually enjoyed the fruits of the empire. Truly. So an empire does not serve everybody, all its subjects. It only serves the elites, the masters, the ones who are truly in power in the empire. Let's talk about the British Empire. Did it serve India? It exploited India. It destroyed India totally. Did it serve Mesopotamia? No, it did not. The British Empire, did it serve Africa? Much of Africa was conquered by the British Empire. It did not. So empires typically are exploitative in nature. Indian empires were different because we never really, uh, you know, colonized. We had empires in India. We had the Mauryan Empire, the Kushan Empire, the Gupta Empire, the Karkota Empire, the Chola Empire, the Maratha Empire, etc. The Cholas conquered the entirety of Southeast Asia all the way to the Philippines. But it was not colonization, it was simply conquest and then they were these nations, these kingdoms were allowed to rule as vassals. So there was no extraction of wealth when it came to Indian empires. But when it it comes to other empires, Western empires, whether it was the Roman Empire or the British Empire or the American Empire, it's extraction of wealth. How does the US extract wealth, you will ask? They do it through the financial system, the US dollar. They take debt. The the, the US debt to GDP ratio is is ridiculous. they, They have trillions of dollars of debt, which they will never repay. If they, if they are asked to repay the debt, they will simply print dollars because all the, all the debt is in US dollars and the Americans can print dollars anytime they want. So essentially, they will only repay the debt in paper, paper money. So, you know, so America doesn't serve the world. It serves itself. And even within the US, it serves whoever really runs the, the country. Clearly not the president. <laughs> so yeah, that's the deal. Um... Okay. Auspicious Doomsday says, what could be the Russian plan if it wants to restore its former superpower position? How could Russia engineer problems with the U.S. and how will U.S. vassals suffer? Well, that's a very wide-ranging, expansive question you've asked, but it's a good question. So obviously, Russia would like to restore its, its, its former superpower position. And Russia has great advantages. It has an enormous territory, right? It looks enormous on this map, but it's it's quite large for sure. Uh, so Russia is essentially an autarky. It is self sufficient in all the basic needs that a nation would have. Agriculture, Russia is self sufficient. Minerals, Russia is self sufficient. Oil and gas, Russia has everything it needs. All the rare earth resources, whatever you need, uh, you know, for for a fully industrialized nation, all the resources are available within Russia itself. So it is an autarky, it is not dependent on anybody else, it does not depend on other nations for oil or gas or or metals or coal or anything or agriculture, anything at all. So that's the great advantage Russia has and uh, eventually they would want to, well, if it wants to become a superpower again, it has to become a great econ- economy again. It already has a huge military and the world's largest arsenal of nuclear weapons um, how could Russia engineer problems for the U.S.? Well, it could expand its footprint in Europe, for starters. So Ukraine, it could eventually overtake. Maybe, you know, the for, former Warsaw Pact nations, is the Eastern European nations eventually could come under Russian sway if they are able to engineer that. And then once that happens, other nations would, you know, if, if they are able to bring nations out of the U.S. orbit, that would that would cause a great uh, uh, decline in the U.S. prestige and credibility, which is something that would engineer problems with the U.S. throughout the world, and when it comes to Africa, also Russia provides security and safety to various African regimes through the Wagner forces, for instance, and all that. Then, if Russia, as part of BRICS, could uh, you know succeed in creating a new BRICS currency and creating a separate world order a separate economic and financial order that could also create huge problems for the US so it's something that will happen over time they will certainly try to do this and the Americans will try their, try, try their best to resist this so that's a tug of war we are witnessing in real time right now in the 2020s and by the time 2030 comes around I think the world could be a very different place from what it is right now Um, this is a question I get a lot what do I think about Andrew Tate I don't know much about him I have not, uh, I think uh, lots of people uh, are very greatly influenced by him for some reason. I think he had a lot of videos on the internet and all that. I have not seen a single video of his. I don't really know what he stands for. I don't know why he is so famous and popular and all that. And there are lots of controversies around him. You know, Uh, he was arrested, I suppose, in Romania. I'm not sure if he's still under arrest, he and his brother. So I don't know. I really haven't spent any time trying to research this in this gentleman and understand his life history and why he's so famous. I've never been interested. So I don't know. It's a question I get all the time, so let me answer this right now. I don't know much about Andrew Date. Okay, what else? Atharavarajpayee says, which country is a bigger threat to, to India in the long run, China or the US? <laughs> uh, well, you know, geographically, China is next door. They have conquered Tibet in the 1950s and now we have a common border with China. A very long, extensive border which is completely undemarcated. The Chinese have refused to demarcate the border. They want to keep this issue open so that they can keep India off balance. They can keep on needling India, keep on pricking and pushing India, salami slicing, all that stuff. So that's a huge issue for India. And for India to resolve the China issue we will have to resolve the Tibet issue, which means Tibet needs to be free again. Tibet needs to be liberated from the Chinese. And it's nowhere near happening right now. We are not in a position to do that right now. Maybe in the next 20 years, we may be in a position to perhaps do something about it. So China is a long-term threat for us. China is a long-term threat. Significant, real and present danger for India. China, and why is China a threat? It's because India is the only nation in Asia that is that can pose a challenge to China. India is the only nation in Asia that can uh, you know, possibly in the long run compete with China and surpass China. Historically, India has always been the world's largest economy until the 1700s. And China was always number two, historically. Look up Angus Madison's uh, research. So that's the potential that India has. That's been his- India's historic rightful position at the top of the global economic chain. The world's largest economy. So China knows India's potential. And they've grabbed a lot of territory and all that. Right now they've become so large, inflated. But India has this potential. So that's why the Chinese fear India. They fear India. And that's why China is a huge threat. Right now China is way more powerful. Their economy (coughs) is about, what's India's economic uh, GDP right now? 3.7 trillion dollars or something. China is about 16, 17, something around that. So it's way larger. And because of that, it's a, it has a much more powerful military, but it's tied out, it's tied up in various places because of they have started conflicts with everybody. So so China is a real and present present threat for India in the long run. the us the U.S. also now sees India as a long-term threat, a long-term competitor, a long-term rival. India is emerging. India is is finally getting its act together. the Indian economy is finally growing and it's projected to keep growing for the next 20 years at least. So eventually, India could become the next China. That's a possibility. It's a possibility that the Americans will not discount. So that's why they see India as a long-term rival. And they will do their best to not allow this to happen. How do you do it? You keep India under pressure by creating issues within India. You can start, you know, like what's happening in Manipur right now. That's an example. What happened when Donald Trump visited India? What happened at the time? I think we can all remember what was going on in India at the time. Uh, They can create a color revolution kind of situation. That's something they have perfected over time. They can destabilize India's neighborhood. You know, we know what's happening in Nepal. Large-scale Christian conversions. We know what's happening in other other parts of the subcontinent uh, and so on. So, So the U.S. is also a huge threat for India. They don't want India to rise. They want India to be off balance. They want India to be only sufficiently strong enough to counterbalance China, but not more than that. So they will cooperate with India in certain certain ways, but they will also work against India in a lot of ways. They will keep demonizing India about you know that that fake bogey of human rights and democracy and all that, which the Americans pull out anytime they need to pressurize a nation. So, they will keep on doing that. So, I think both nations are a threat to India in the long run. I have nothing against either nation, actually. I would like to see both nations do well, but facts are facts. They both see India as uh, as a rival. And they will do their best. The Chinese would like India to eventually break up into pieces. And so would the Americans, actually. And they indulge in what they call sub-national diplomacy. You know? And they, they they fund various anti-India forces. The Americans do. The Chinese also do that. So it's an issue. It's a huge problem for India. And the only solution for India is to keep rising. Keep rising and rise over the next 20 years. Do not get involved in any major military conflict. Keep rising. Grow the economy. And once the economy is at a certain uh, certain place, like let's say around $10 trillion, then we will be able to resist lots of these external forces. And then we will be able to solve internal problems, which we are not able to solve right now. So that's the situation India is in. I think both nations are long-term adversaries actually for India. So we try our best to maintain good relations. Our, Our prime minister recently, very recently was in the US and he was given a very good welcome, very warm welcome. And both nations, both leaders Mr. Modi and Mr. Biden spoke about what India and America have in common democracy and all those shared values or whatever it is and all that this is the age of AI, America and India, all that so India will try its best to cooperate with the US and also with China in whatever way we can but overall we have to be realistic that both nations see India as an adversary in the long run so India is going to have to walk the tightrope do the tightrope walking act and hopefully we do it right which for which we will need the right leadership. So if India votes the wrong leadership into power, it's game over essentially. Okay. Um, what else? Rakshasi <laughs> Siraj says, Does Sanadhan Dharma support feminism? Feminists talk about equal rights, but not about taking responsibility. Dharma teaches about performing duties. It doesn't, feminism lead to the emasculation of men. You know, feminism is a foreign concept. It's it's a newfangled concept that came out of the West. It emerged out of the West, West because of the defects and deficiencies and horrors of Western society. Women were horribly downtrodden in the West so feminism uh, it's a whole history you know i'll not go into the details but it first i think emerged out of the us so over there in western society because of the cultural values and all that you know the catholic christian values or whatever because of that women were second class citizens they were very badly downtrodden they had no rights until the mid 20th century women did not have the, <coughs> the right to vote in many nations in europe I think until the beginning, until the 1990s, I think there were certain parts of Switzerland where women could not vote. They did not have the right to vote. So that's the kind of society the West is. So that's why feminism came out of necessity. It arose out of necessity. They had to do some, women had to do something about this. um, To get uh, the same rights as men. So then feminism emerged. That's the emergence of feminism. And then feminism kind of became the dominant ideology. And now it, it what, what uh, this the comment says over here, the emasculation of men, it's true. So now <laughs> what's happening is that this feminism is merged with the woke ideology and all that. And what we are seeing now in the West is that men are becoming feminine and women are becoming masculine. And it is men who are now the oppressed gender. That's the weirdness that's happened in the West. When it comes to Sanatan Dharma, there is no concept of feminism. And there is no concept of equal rights. It's about dif- I mean in, in Dharma, we don't really talk about rights, we talk about responsibilities, but Dharma has always treated women extraordinarily well. You know, women actually have a more exalted status than men in, in, a, in, in many ways. <laughs> So, you know, we have to understand that this concept of equality is 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 wrong. There is no equality in nature. There is no equality anywhere in the world. Right? You cannot equate a man with a woman. These two genders play different roles. And now they'll say, why are you talking about gender roles? Because that's that's the truth. That's always been the fact in human history. Thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of human 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 evolution, males and females played different roles. Now we have technology, and the human male brawn and brawn and muscle power is not really required. We, I agree. So today, gender roles and all that is uh, are naturally changing. Even in India, we have the induction of women into the armed forces. Yeah, <clears throat> so. uh, that's just how things are changing and a lot of it a lot of it is because of western influence but yes feminism leads to the emasculation of men and today the thing is in the indian education system especially in colleges and universities they teach what what do they call gender studies or whatever it is and uh, feminism is taught so women so girls are made to feel like you know they've been oppressed for thousands of years throughout history. That was true in the West, but not in the East. But that's what they're taught. So then this concept of feminism also has emerged in, in India. And women want to be like, you know, the way the Western women are, the stronger, the more dominant gender and all that. So it's it's a mess. I, I hope too much of this doesn't get introduced into India. The education system is mainly to blame and also the entertainment industry. So, uh. So, when it comes to Sanatan Dharma, there was never any oppression of women. And women actually had a very highly respected and rather exalted position in society. <clears throat> okay. Um Rahul says, I see a massive amount of hatred, prejudice, ridicule from Europeans and Americans about India. Plenty of dehumanization. Why do they have a track record of being so shockingly hateful? See, Europe has always been racist. America is nothing but an outcome, and an, a new colony of Europe. Settler settler colonization. <clears throat> and uh, all of this uh, goes back to the Catholic Church, the Pope. So when uh, Cristoforo Colombo discovered this new land, he thought it was India, it was actually the Americas, um the pope gave the right to the um to the to the explorers <coughs> so I me, mean, to, to claim any territory as their own as long as it did not have christians so if so the this thing was created that if a person if if a society is not a christian society it is subhuman it is inferior and it can be enslaved and destroyed and that's what actually happened and that's what colonialism was um So that's something that's part of their culture. It's part of their history. The Europeans and the Americans are nothing but you know settler European settlers who have settled who settled down in this new continent after destroying the natives. This horrific genocide of the Native Americans happened. At least at least fifty to one hundred million individuals, people, innocent people were killed by the Europeans. Uh, So now what we see is that the West is no longer the predominant force in the world. It is still the richest. Uh, block, so to say, in the world, the so-called first world, the global north, so to say. They are still the richest, but now the East is emerging, especially China and India. They don't see Russia as part of the West, so Russia itself now is part of the East. So the East is emerging. And the three major poles are RIC, Russia, India, China. And obviously when a dominant power sees new powers emerging, they are jealous and resentful. And that's why they will try to demoralize these new emerging powers by making them feel inferior, which is why you see all this ridicule, this prejudice, this hatred, and the dehumanization. So it's actually a symptom, when it comes to India, of India's emergence as a new power in the world, as a a new economy, a major economy, and a major geopolitical force, which has happened very rapidly after the Ukraine war. So because India is now emerging… <clears throat> and India is no longer, uh, you know, subsidiary or, or, or uh, you know, dominated by the West. That's why you are seeing this jealousy, this hatred and this prejudice and this ridicule and the dehumanization. Which is a symptom of their helplessness in the face of India's uh, rise. India is beginning to rise now. India is essentially where the Chinese were in the 1980s late 1980s, early 1990s. That's where India is at now. It's just early days. India has at least two decades of very hard, intense work in front of it for India to be where China is today. At least 20 years. So Indians should not get complacent that we are rising, we are now Vishwa Guru, we are superpower. No, no, no. We are beginning to learn how to walk. Remember that. And the world notices this. The world now notices that India is becoming more confident and India is actually now rising. So that's why they don't like it. And that's why we see this attitude. And this entire thing of racial hatred, racism, all that, it's part of European culture. It's part of the European DNA. So not not surprising to see all this. Aparna says, what's your analysis of the Wagner group revolt in Russia? What does it tell about Russia's internal affairs? I have an entire video about this, which came out two, three days ago. Uh, take a look at that. But if you want me to answer right now, in brief, it was a psychological operation. It was not a coup at all. It was a redeployment in broad daylight, essentially, of the Wagner forces from Ukraine to Belarus. Let's take a look at the map. So, let's go to Ukraine. We know where it is. So, the Wagner forces were in the Donbas region, which is uh, eastern ukraine right and they fought the battle of bakhmut which is here which is now called artemovsk so they fought the battle of bakhmut and it took it lasted 224 days and eventually after 224 days wagner the wagner forces were able to win the city of bakhmut at the cost of an enormous amount of ukrainian lives and material so now wagner wanted to so now the Russians wanted to redeploy Wagner from the Donbass region into Belarus. So recently Belarus, so Belarus essentially is a Russian ally. You could, you would not be mistaken to call it a Russian vassal state. All right. <clears throat> and recently, just a month or so ago, in the past month or two, Russia has transferred tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus territory. So Belarus now hosts on its territory, tactical nuclear weapons that belong to Russia. So you can see the, the close interconnectedness that Russia and Belarus have. Belarus is right north, absolutely north of Ukraine. And the Belarus border is about 100 kilometers or so, maybe less, from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. So what the Russians wanted to do was they wanted to redeploy the, the Wagner forces that had done their job in, in, in successfully in the Donbas region. They wanted to redeploy them in Belarus all the way. So they did this in broad daylight by creating an artificial fake coup. So, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the boss of Wagner, has done this in the past. On May, In the beginning of May this year, he claimed that Wagner was retreating and withdrawing from Bakhmut because the Russian military under uh, Sergei Shoigu and, uh, and the other guy, Grasimov, they were starving Wagner of ammunition. So he said, we are withdrawing, but they did not withdraw and they won the battle. So it was it was a psychological operation. They fooled the West and in Europe and the world into believing that there was there was dissent within Russia, within the Russian forces, and there was a rebellion, and that Putin had lo- uh, apparently lost control of what was happening. But there was, that was not the case. So now this was an even bigger psychological operation, an even bigger deception that Wagner did. They pretended to create to start a coup, right, and they marched towards Moscow. They took the city of Rostov on Don. Yeah, they captured the city, then they marched northwards towards Moscow. They were two hundred kilometers from Moscow, and then they said, "No, we are no longer we are we are abandoning the coup." And then they very rapidly deployed westwards and entered Belarus. And right now, Yevgeny Prigozhin is in is in essentially apparently in Minsk, and Wagner forces are in Belarus. So within twenty four hours, the coup was over. And Wagner had been redeployed from Bakhmut, from, from the Donbas region all the way into Belarus, with the Western media and the Western governments cheering for them. <laughs> so that's what happened in broad daylight. In full view of the world, this is what happened. So it was a psychological operation. And what it also did is that it kind of exposed the traitors within Russia, the ones who supported the coup, the fake coup but the deal is this was not a coup anybody who has seriously studied how a coup is executed will know it's not a coup study the book d'État" by Edward Lutwak that's the book you need to study if you want to understand how to execute a coup which I would not recommend executing a coup but I would recommend studying the book so this was a fake coup and it has actually made Vladimir Putin stronger and exposed his enemies that's what it did Okay, <clears throat> uh, what else do we have? Um, Lots of questions. Prathamesh says, predict the analyze the events for the next fifteen days. I cannot. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or the next fifteen days. That's not what I do. I am not. There are certain so-called geopolitical experts who say every one of my predictions come right. Comes right. There are certain such some such people. You know they they have made they have created a name for themselves by claiming that they always make accurate predictions you know no geopolitical analyst can make 100% accurate predictions you will always get something wrong so i am not in the business of predict, predicting events i analyze what's happening and i can give possible scenarios of what could happen but i cannot predict what's actually going to happen i, I can always get things wrong i think everybody Gets things wrong. I don't think it was fake, sir. All right, amnesia. It's up to you to believe what you want to believe. Entirely your your choice. So, so if this was not a fake coup, then what what was the outcome of the coup? So, Prigojin went through Russian territory for hundreds of kilometers. He was not stopped. He was not arrested when he could have been arrested. The he was given unimpeded access. You know, on the M4 highway for hundreds of kilometers, he was allowed to go into Belarus. And what was the outcome of the coup if you don't think it was fake? If it was a real coup, Putin would have crushed them. He has the military power to crush any rebel, any rebellion. He chose not to. Anyway, it's up to you what to believe. I can give you my analysis and you can make your own decisions and and understanding based on that. All right, That's fine. I respect your opinion. I respect your right to have a different opinion. Based on your understanding of how things have gone, <clears throat> Romai Raj Singh says, "How far behind are we in jet engine technology? Will we be able ever be able to pull it off?" See, the one stumbling bo- block when it comes to jet engines. So we have to understand how jet engines work. There are various different kinds of jet engines. Let's talk about the standard turbofan engine engine that we have, uh, <clears throat> that is used in fighter jets, fighter aircraft so inside a jet engine what happens is you suck in air from outside you mix it with fuel you ignite it and that ignition is essentially results in an explosion that you control and that expels gases out from the outlet behind the jet engine and that's what impels that what's provided that what that is what provides the the impulse that that uh, that powers the aircraft the the jet so that's what propels the aircraft forward so you suck in air from 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 ahead from uh, from let's say this is a jet engine this is the inlet so air will be sucked in from here and inside there will be an ignition it will be mixed with the jet uh, with the jet fuel it will be ignited and there's a whole you know there are the turbine blades and all that which will which will spin and the uh Exhaust will be ejected from behind. And that's what propels the uh, jet engine and the aircraft forward. So, inside the engine, you have incredibly high temperatures. 1500, 2000 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure exactly what the temperature is. You can look it up if you want. But we have extremely high temperatures. Temperatures Temperatures are higher than the melting point of iron and steel and many metals so then the question is if the temperatures are so high for a jet engine to have a certain amount of thrust which you need thrust is measured in kilonewtons when it comes to jet engines right uh, so if you want a certain amount of thrust you will have a you will need a certain amount of certain temperature inside the jet engine and this temperature is higher than the melting point of your standard metals like steel and all that. So then, of what material do you make your turbine blades? Your turbine blades have to be able to withstand that those temperatures for a sustained amount of time. And not only for one mission, but for a few hundred missions. For let's say at least hundred missions. So what material will you make that turbine blade out of? So that is the crux. That's where we are behind. We have not invested in material science. So, when it comes to, let's say, the, the General Electric uh, F, whatever engine it is, the, the, the turbine blade is made out of a single crystal of a certain metallic alloy. A single crystal. You don't take molten metallic alloy and you cast it and you make turbine blades out of it. You don't do that. You grow the entire turbine blade out of a single crystal of that metal metallic alloy. And that is a very specialized, specific technology. India has not been able to develop it thus far because it's extremely, it takes a lot of time to develop it. Lots of trial and error. You have to try and fail several hundred times to get it right. So we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the researchers. I think we have a jet engine uh, research establishment somewhere in Bangalore or something, I'm not sure, they have been trying to develop the, the what is it called? The Kaveri engine. And the Kaveri engine gives a certain amount of thrust which is insufficient for what we need. I think the thrust, the thrust it gives is about 50, 60, maybe 70 kilonewtons. I don't think it's up to 70. So it's in, it's enough to power drones and all that, but not enough to power a, a fighter jet. So I think the Tejas fighter jet needs at least 110, 120 kilonewtons of thrust, if I am not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. But yeah, so for that, you need an engine which can generate a very high temperature, higher than what it is, but we don't have the uh, ability to, to, to create turbine blades that can withstand those temperatures. So the crucial technology that we are missing is the turbine blade technology, how to build turbine blades that can, that can withstand those incredibly high temperatures. So that's done by, build, by growing the entire blade out of, out of a single crystal of a specific metallic alloy, which contains nickel and certain other metals, if I am not mistaken. And that's what we have not been able to do because we have not invested in material science research. That's why we are far behind. Eventually, we'll be able to do it. I'm not sure what the status is right now. Maybe it's classified. Maybe it's secret. Yeah, we don't reveal these uh, this information to the public. So, I'm not sure where we are in the development of an indigenous jet engine. Right now, we have uh, signed a memorandum of agreement with uh, General Electric, I think, of the US, in which they will transfer certain am- certain a certain amount of jet engine technology to India. And these engines will be built in India, which is, a, which is a good start. And some people say it's about 80 percent of the technology which will, be, which will be transferred. We that remains to be seen, it's just a memorandum, a memorandum of understanding that's been signed thus far. Uh, so we will have to see how much technology we actually get, but we will certainly not be given the crucial technology, the uh single crystal turbine blade technology. That is something we will have to find a way to. Develop on our own, so that's the issue. We will eventually be able to pull it off, it will take time maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. You know, optimistically, maybe less, but realistically, maybe 10 20 years. <clears throat> okay, what else do we have? We have so many, many, many questions. Uh, Elliot Anderson says, When will India have its own Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram that is global and animation, gaming, K pop like industries? Uh, you know, there is only so much the government can do. When it comes to Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, animation, whatever, these are all private industry, private companies. The US government has nothing to do with this. You can't expect the government to go and solve every problem the, the country has. The private sector needs to step in. So to develop something like Google or Facebook or YouTube, you need to take risks, right? It takes a lot of money to build such a company. And we have very rich people in India. But unfortunately, I think the, the culture of taking big risks still isn't there. Because of, I mean, for obvious reasons. India for the past 1000 years has been under foreign occupation. People have been artificially impoverished by the British. There is so much poverty in India even today, which is all something that stems back to the British times. When the British disenfranchised the Indian people and stole all the land. And redistributed it to their minions. So today, that's a, that's the issue. So Indians became very risk averse in the past two, three hundred years, maybe thousand years. So that that attitude needs to change. It will take time, right? So so Indian business people they want to invest their money in in ventures that have lower risk rather than high risk ventures, and that's why India is not, you know, coming up with these, uh, you know, Googles and Facebooks and all that. So I think it can happen in the next 5-10 years, if if people who are sufficiently wealthy would take risks. Okay, Uh, lots of other questions as always. Let's see what else do we have. why is the super chat option not ap- appearing in Mac OS? Only super stickers. It won't appear in Android also or in Windows because I've turned off the super chat option. Uh, I think it is obscene to answer questions in exchange for money. <laughs> this is not what, that's not what the channel is about. I had tried the super chat a- option a few times initially. You know, I turned it on, but then what happened is that some people see when you do a super chat, it's very noticeable. It's very visible. So me when i'm looking at the live chat my eyes will be drawn to that so then i'll end up answering more questions of those who are paying to ask questions and there are lots of students on this channel who watch the channel and students are broke they have no money and they are not in a position to put super chats so i think it's just wrong to divide my audience between those who can pay and those who can't pay so that's why i've completely switched off the super chat option i will treat everybody the same and i will not take money for, answer, for answering questions which is so stupid so that's why it's not there it's by design that it's not there okay <clears throat> Akash says bring Abhijit Ayer back his talks are genuine what is Jay Shankar policy I too didn't understand actually you know I, I would be very happy and I will certainly bring him back in a few months uh, whenever I go to Delhi next I will be very happy to bring him back for another long discussion it's always fun to talk to him um uh, when it comes to the jayashankar doctrine i disagree with what, with what he says see i when i have a guest on a podcast i will never interrupt the guest and i will never argue with the guest and i will never disagree with the guest but those who watch me and those who follow me and those who watch this channel regularly will know what my my positions are right so when i invite somebody for a podcast I want to learn. I will, first of all, invite only those people that I find interesting and who have something to offer from whom I can actually learn something. And I want to understand their position and their perspective. So I give them as much time as they want to say whatever they want to say. And I don't disagree with them but here i will say that i don't agree with the with with his contention that the jayashankar policy is is a flop or there is no jayashankar doctrine there is a jayashankar doctrine which is actually the Modi doctrine and which is being implemented by dr jayashankar i think it's a very successful doctrine it's a very successful approach thus far to geopolitics to india's unique position in the world it's tailor made for that and it's designed to take india forward so i so, and abhijit armitra did not agree with that so that's fine so I have a different position from, from what his position is. So that's something only those who watch this channel regularly will understand. I actually am very happy with the uh, geopolitical position that India has taken. Abhijit Armitra is a little more pessimistic when it comes to that. Uh, obviously, he he obviously also wants India to do very well, but he has a dep- different way, maybe a different uh, uh, he wants it to be done maybe in a different way. Maybe he thinks it is not being done well enough or strongly enough. And that's so that's okay. It's it's perfectly fine to have different opinions. Okay. Giuseppe <clears throat> says, Do you think do you think men and women can be platonic friends, <laughs> roommates? I ask between because science says men and women are different in every way. P.S. Yes, I am being a sim for asking. Okay. Um, can men and women be platonic friends? I think it depends on the person. Roommates. I think it depends. I think some people are in, incapable of having that sort of a platonic relationship. I think, I think some people can have it. Uh, yeah, men and women are very, definitely very different in every way. That's for sure. But once again, it it all comes down to the individual. So there are certain people who would be able to have a platonic relationship with a roommate of the opposite gender. And some people may not be able to have it. So (laughs) I think it all depends on the individual. You know? So, yeah, I don't... That's my very simple, straightforward perspective on this. It depends on the person. Some people can do it. Some people can't. uh, Irrespective of gender. Okay. What else? What else? What else? Uh, lots of questions. Other questions. Okay. This is a speculative question. What would happen if Sadar Patel was the first PM of, in, of India instead of Nehru? I've answered this question maybe seventy-eight times till now. I think India would have taken a different course. Mr. Patel died soon after India's uh, the transfer of power in 1947. So maybe he would not have been a long-lasting Prime Minister of India. But he would most likely have prevented China from from conquering Tibet and maybe the Indian foreign policy would have been much more pragmatic much more realistic instead of being idealistic and stupid so yeah that's what I would say in short in India's in the path India would have taken would have been significantly different from what it eventually took okay okay what else Um, let's see lots of other questions Wapsy creation says, I'm a lawyer, what can I do for India? I think you, what you can do for India is you excel at your profession. You do the best possible job you can on a daily basis in your profession. That's what you can do for India. We, want, we need people who have high standards. So whether you are a lawyer, whether you are a business person, whether you are a policeman or policewoman, whether you are a soldier, whether you are whatever, whether you are a teacher, do the best you can in your profession on a daily basis. Raise your standards. That's what you can do for India. If everybody does that, just imagine how better India will become. So, that's what you can do for India. Raise your standards. Do the best you can. Rise to the fullest extent of your potential. Work consciously towards doing that. If each each individual does this, India will be totally transformed. So, that's what you can do for India. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. We have already reached almost two hours. Wow. Um... uh what else what else ah uh, controversy shall we go into controversial matters tanmoy says what's your view on same sex marriage in india i think it is totally wrong to criminalize homosexuality you know so we have decriminalized decriminalized homosexuality it is the narendra modi government that did that The Congress and other governments were in power for decades. They did not do it. They they criminalized. They were happy to criminalize homosexuality. It was the Narendra Modi government that decriminalized homosexuality. So that is something that needed to be done and we've done that. But if you look at human history, human history that we know of is about 10,000 years. Marriage has always been between men and women. So I think we should give the homosexual people the same rights when it comes to them not being criminalized or 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 uh, oppressed in any way when it comes to marriage i think the purpose of marriage is to it's the foundation of society uh, it's to traditionally it's it's to procreate and all that and obviously homosexuals cannot procreate so i think we, we we don't have to emulate the west in everything it does the west is not a good role model for the world which we are seeing very well when it comes to europe and the us So I think we have our own culture to draw, to to fall back upon. We have our own way of life. We are the world's oldest and greatest civilization. The world was civilized by us to a large extent. So we don't need to look at the West for guidance. We only have to look back back at at our own history and traditions. So from that perspective, I don't think we need same-sex marriage in India. We have done a very good thing by decriminalizing homosexuality. They can live their own life any way they want. We don't care. We don't we, we, it, it doesn't bother us. They can do whatever they want. But I don't I think I don't think marriage is required. You know, and I'm sure lots of people will disagree with me, which is fine. But I don't think there is any need for, or maybe there could there could be some category or whatever of them having, I I don't know, you know as far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's any need for same-sex marriage in India, decriminalization I think is is good enough, which was a necessary action okay um Ray Amon says, I'm bisexual, I don't believe in marriage at all, be it between straight people or cured people. Well, that's fine. You can believe, uh, you have the right to believe, uh, to hold on to your own beliefs, which is fine. Don't get married. It's it's fine. (laughs) No 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 one's forcing anybody to either do it this way or that way. But yeah, totally fine. Um... Shaheen Vahman Zadigyan says, what's the future of ISRO in the next decade? What are the major projects ISRO should work on when it comes to remaining the top three in the space race? So right now, who are the top three? NASA is a big deal. SpaceX is bigger, has a bigger operation than most nations, a private company. Uh, the Chinese space program, is they have dozens of launches every year. The French have lots of launches every year. So I think ISRO is not even in the top five right now. not not even the top 6 perhaps and ISRO is capable of being in the top 3 for sure but it needs funding how many rockets do we launch every year how many rockets did ISRO launch in 2022 I don't think it was even 10 you know so it's a lack of ambition on the part of those who control and fund ISRO which is the Indian government the scientists can do the engineers can do whatever we ask them to do you know which is what is isro's most powerful rocket it is the gslv mark III, which is which has a new name these days it's been rebranded but it's the gslv mark III. it is a medium to l- light lift vehicle you know there are there are rockets that are like 10 times 100 times more powerful than, than the gslv mark III. and we are capable of building a rocket that's easily 10 times more powerful but i don't know when it's going to happen you need funding for that you need a Go ahead from the leadership for that. So I think ISRO is being constrained by a lack of ambition on the part of the Indian government. So I don't know what the future is. We're going to have the Chandrayaan 3 uh, next month. No, this month, this month, in a couple of weeks, Chandrayaan 3. Then we're going to have Gaganyan at some point in time, maybe in 24, maybe in 25, which is the hu- human space flight, flight program which again is like a technology demonstrator, but what next? What's the long-term plan? We don't know what the long-term plan or long-term vision is. I'm not sure the government even has a long-term vision for for the Indian Space Exploration Program. The Chinese have a very clear vision of where they want to be in 2050 and where they want to be in 2100. They have a very clear vision. We don't have a vision. So I find this extremely disappointing. So I don't know what the future is. Will we even have a rocket that's ten times more powerful in the, in the next ten years? I'm not sure about that. Also, so yeah, so the major projects, like you say, one is Chandrayaan, one is Gaganyaan, then you have Shukrayaan, which is a mission to Venus. But then what? It has to be part of an integrated long-term vision, which we don't seem to have. So we are not in the top three in the space race. I'm not sure if we are definitely not even in the top five in the top in the space race. Somewhere in the top ten, in the in the you know bottom of the top ten, that's where we are which is very disappointing. We could be in the top three or top two actually if we were to fund ISRO properly. Anyhow, that's one of the disappointing things but there are many good things also in India. So, yeah. I guess, I guess we can't have it all. Um, okay, what else do we have? Let me take one more question perhaps because we have now crossed the two-over limit. We can't do it forever. <laughs> um <clears throat> um let's see let's see let me take one more question one more question uh (laughs) okay atarva says what's your take on the north korean defector yonmi parks yonmi park and what she says about food crisis in north korea is it really that bad well i don't know what the truth is in north korea i don't have sufficient data I haven't been there. And even if I were to go there, I'm sure I would only see some, the good parts of North Korea. There may be some bad parts, which I will not be able to see. So I can't say for sure. Um, I have seen a few of her interviews, some parts of that. I am not quite sure if she is very credible. You know, she's become kind of a celebrity in the US and she enjoys that. She enjoys the attention and she wants to stay relevant. So I it, 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 I get the feeling she, she every time she talks, she makes the story a little more outlandish, a little more extreme I get the feeling. I'm not sure if I'm right, but that's the feeling I get, you know. Uh, So I'm not sure how credible she is. It's one person's account that we are hearing. I'm sure some of it is true. I'm not sure all of it is true. So we've got to be careful in what we believe, actually. That's what I'm saying, you know. Right, that's about Yeonmi Park, the North Korean defector. Um, Shall I take one more question? Uh Okay. Okay, I guess I guess we are we are at the end of today's session. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to end it over here. I can see lots of people are still asking me questions. I'm so sorry but I'm going to have to stop it here. I always try to take as many questions as possible. So let's end it over here. Tomorrow I have a live stream in Hindi. So, I've not done that for a long time. So, lots of people, I get this, this request all the time. Please do a live stream in Hindi. Do videos in Hindi. So, I'm going to try to do a live stream in Hindi tomorrow. Let's see how well it goes. Same time tomorrow, 9 p.m. India time on the Hindi channel, which is linked in the in this YouTube channel. Okay. So, in case you want to see me speak Hindi and answer your questions in Hindi, join tomorrow's live stream at 9 p.m. Until then, take care. Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. And like I always say, keep raising your standards. Thank you. I'll see you very soon. Bye.